The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. Um, the uh, hot, hot weather in Colorado has finally changed suddenly and fairly drastically. <laughs> so I'm personally enjoying that since I hate the heat. But uh, wherever you are, hope the weather is not too horrific. I know a lot of other parts of the country uh, over the next few days, as you might listen to this podcast when it first releases, Still going to be pretty toasty out there, but uh, if you're in the Rocky Mountain area, there's been a, a distinct shift, which should bring some rain to Jim's garden, which I'm sure he's happy about. But today we've got a bag full of questions, and I'm assured by Jim we'll start with some uh, Social Security-related questions. And it sounds like we've got a whole big bag of uh, IRMA, income-related monthly adjustment amount questions, which are Medicare premium surcharges. That's with the IRMA is uh so we'll probably dig into at least a one or two of those so um i'll bring jim in when he's ready to go he can confirm that he's excited for the rain for his garden although it sounds like we might get a deluge and it might be too much uh and a little too late in the season i'm not sure how much rain this time of the year does for your garden but you can you can tell us yeah, <laughs> I'm sure people are dying to know, but I know you are right because I was thinking the exact same thing. Uh, at this point in time, uh, a lot of rain is nice. I always appreciate rain here mm-hmm. in Colorado, folks, but you're right. Uh, usually by mid-September to late September, uh, I'm not freaking out over watering anymore. So we still have about three to four more weeks of, of issue for me, but then it just... It's, it's not an issue because everything is pretty much dying down at that point. And what little I have left, my fall uh, lettuce and my fall kale and things of that nature, very easy for me to uh, keep watered. Most of September is spent harvesting and uh, preserving everything. But I do appreciate the rain. But the other issue, because Chris hit the, the, the nail on the head, uh, we are supposed to get a, a lot for Colorado standards over a short period of time. And it's, I'd rather have three rainy 
light rainy days in a row than one deluge where it all comes because most of it just washes away uh, and doesn't really sink into to the ground that's that's the issue but i'll take it when i can so it is kind of neat it's cloudy today and really does look like it's going to start raining at some point reminds me of back east uh, which is a good break from i think they said we had 11 or 12 days i was at eight Eight to 11. I forget. It was more than a week, but less than two weeks in a row of 90 plus with several flirting with 100. It's just hot. But anyways, it's summer. It should be hot. So I'm certainly not complaining or or anything. It's Oh, no, I am complaining. I was. I was complaining. (laughs) I I, I complained too. I was thinking the same thing. Um, But and it's funny, though, in the middle of winter, we're going to be doing what? Man, it's cold. No, we'll be golfing in shorts in the winter. It's not that cold here. We could get a couple of cold snaps. I'm not going to go out at night, maybe. But But I will be in Florida again uh, in February for probably two, maybe three weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, Again, to go down, help take care of my mom Mm -hmm. as my sister and her boyfriend go uh, away and go do something. And uh, so I'm... I'm looking forward to that, so I'll have a little bit of a break in the middle of winter and uh, enjoy that. Okay, so we'll jump into today's show. Chris is right. I told him a couple of days ago that we got quite a few Irma questions, and a lot of them are older ones, and uh, I had been saving them to do an EDU show dedicated to Irma, and we still may do that uh, in the future. But I started thinking, since Irma, folks, is so closely related to Social Security, in the sense that Social Security Administration is the one who who kind of tracks that, correct, Chris? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, and, and it's because the Social Security system essentially kind of under its umbrella uh, manages and administers the Medicaid or Medicare system. Medicare system. Yeah. So since they're kind of close together, I thought we would do some Irma questions as well. So I picked uh, two questions, Social Security question and an Irma question, and we'll probably do that for the next couple of weeks on the ED uh, Q&A show. Mm -hmm. Uh, I admit both questions are rather light today, so you can, since it is early, we usually record this Friday afternoons. This is Friday morning, so I thought Chris's brain might still be a little foggy from his night's sleep. Probably so, a good, a valid <laughs> prediction. Valid point. Yeah. Yeah. So both these questions are uber light. In fact, the Social okay. Security question, you're going to be, seriously? You want me to answer this? But yes, I do want you to answer it because the listener wants you to answer it. So okay. uh, if you're ready, I I'm will game. jump into this. Sure. Now I just got to find it. Figured I would have these open ahead of time. Here we go. Okay, the question came in from our uh, blog website, helpmysocialsecurity.com. So this person probably doesn't know we have uh, a podcast, perhaps, and didn't know that. I think you've answered a similar question to this probably twice. I think once a year you answer a question on Mm -hmm. this uh, because – People are do-it-yourselfers and they want to do things themselves, Chris, which is fine. And we, mm-hmm. we support do-it-yourselfers. Don't get me wrong on that. Um, so maybe you can help this person out. Came in through our blog post. Uh, hello, my name. <clears throat> oh, she is from Mr. No, she must be a podcast listener. She said her name is Georgette. 
Oh, well, maybe she really or is. Maybe Georgette. her real name is Georgette. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Georgette, and I am from Mich. Oh no, she is a podcast listener. I've listened to your podcast over the year, Wait and a I heard. I, I thought you read these ahead of time. I don't really pay attention oh. to them. <laughs> Because she says right there, I, I've listened to your podcast. But go ahead. Pull, Sorry to interrupt. I, go ahead. I pull them. All's what I do. So folks know. I Because I do this all hip techie now. Now, when I printed them, I had to read them. I had no choice but to read them. What I do to find social security questions in your little search box there in Outlook, I just type social security. Hmm. And it highlights all the social security ones. And I saw this one came in from the helpwithmysocialsecurity.com website. And I thought, oh, this is a social security question. Oh, okay. So we'll learn the details together. (laughs) Perhaps I should pay a little more attention to it. Um, Okay. I am from Michigan. I've listened to your podcast over the years and heard you reference sources for social security claiming tools. What are the best free and or paid tools that you have used over the years to provide analysis on claiming strategies. What advanced professional tools do you use in your planning practice with clients? Hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I think you've answered a question like well, this. Well, yeah, we do uh, occasionally get a question like this, which is uh, totally valid because we have tons of do-it-yourselfers um, listening, and they um, – hopefully realize that in many cases, the estimate for your Social Security benefits that you receive officially from Social Security um, may or may not be accurate um, for, for your particular circumstances because they have some, some uh, specific assumptions that they're making in order to come up with those benefit estimates. Um, and if those assumptions are too different from your reality then that prediction they're making for you for your benefits is going to be off maybe a fair amount. For a lot of people, it's not. For a lot of people, it's actually a pretty decent estimate. So uh, the other thing that the Social Security benefit estimate statements don't do is suggest any type of um, strategy or, or trying to sway you and say, oh, you know, claiming at this age is better or that age is better. That's, they're actually prevented by law from providing that kind of guidance. Um, So they're not going to ever be suggesting. Uh, You can certainly talk to Social Security and ask them about benefits, uh, you know, under certain claiming timing and that sort of thing, and they'll answer those questions, but they're not going to suggest uh, strategies. And strategies usually come up when there's a couple involved, when you have multiple benefits that you might be able to claim there can be certain strategies that might, um, you know, increase your lifetime benefits that you'd want to consider. Single people oftentimes don't have much of a strategy other than what, you know, at what age should I claim and what's right for me. Um, but couples, um, things get a little more interesting, particularly when you have couples that also involve, um, you know, events such as one of one of the couple was previously married and and maybe lost a spouse or they have young children that uh, will be under 18 years old or so when they're collecting social security and uh, you know variations like that open up even more uh, potential for strategies or analysis so 
Um, it is good to take a look at these different things, and it's hard to do by hand. It's hard to do kind of your own research and p- pencil it out on a, an Excel spreadsheet or something. So there's a lot of tools out there, I agree. Uh, first, let me give you know some credit to Social Security directly. They have some tools directly that are free to use. And even just this, the basic Social Security benefit estimate statement that you get from them, if you are close to or older than your age of first eligibility, which is 62 for standard retirement benefits, the benefit estimate statement that you're provided is likely pretty darn accurate, pretty darn close to what your benefit is. So it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be particularly concerned about using an estimate in your forecasting based on the statement that you get from them. The younger you are, um, and the more different from their base assumptions that you are, I think that's when a tool really becomes valuable because then in that tool you can model things or come up with an estimate of benefits that's more specific to your case. And let me share the two key assumptions that can cause the Social Security estimate to be different than what your reality might be. And the two assumptions, and if you read the fine print on those benefit estimates, The two assumptions that are key here are, one, that you will continue to earn what you've earned last year forward until claiming age. So when you're looking at the benefit estimates that they're giving you for age 62, 67, 70, that's on the benefit estimate, and and in in between now, they give you estimates for for the in-between years as well. It's assuming that you're going to continue to earn money at the rate that you earned it last year. And if you earned zero last year, they look at the year before. Well, if you're getting ready to, let's say you're 58 years old and you're actually planning to retire imminently and you made a lot of money last year, you made, I don't know, $150,000 or something last year. Uh, they're going to assume in that benefit estimate statement that you earn $150,000 a year forward until 67. And and I just mentioned you're actually thinking in my hypothetical of retiring right now at 58. Well, you can see now that your reality is quite different than what Social Security is assuming. So that's one key thing, the the your actual future earnings. The earnings history, they know. So that is, quote, accurate, I guess. The other assumption that's built in here that um, uh, is problematic is that they assume that there's no further wage inflation from today forward. Now, where wage inflation plays a part is it's going to affect your earnings record uh, up until the age you turn, uh, the year that you turn 60. So if you're 60 or over, this assumption is not that concerning. If you are fairly young in your 50s, Uh, and you're pulling an estimate statement for your long-term forecasting and your model that you've built for retirement, that assumption can cause your Social Security benefit estimate to be way too pessimistic because at no time has there been a long period of zero wage inflation in the United States. There's been times where you had zero for maybe a year or two, but there has never been anywhere close to like a 10-year period with no wage inflation. Why do they assume something that's not really historically supported? 
they do it on purpose. They're doing it on purpose with some of these assumptions to make sure that they understate your ultimate benefit and thus encourage people then to save more of their own money. So that's a little background. So on to the tools to maybe help figure this out for you. Social Security does have some. Not all of them are particularly easy to use, but that is a free resource, and you're going straight to the horse's mouth there. Uh, as far as the free category goes, um, AARP does have a tool that some people uh, like to use, and that's free. Um, I like uh, SSA.tools, at least I, I have to admit I haven't looked at it recently, so if things have changed, um, that might change my opinion, but it's SSA.tools, so it's not .com, it's .tools, it's free. It's put together by, I think, a software engineer or software programmer. So I think we can trust the code behind it. And uh, that uh, I've seen people have a lot of success with. I know um, opensocialsecurity.com is very popular with people. I have um, concerns about its use. I think people misuse it. Um, and what I mean by that is they maybe interpret its results different than what it's really telling you, the story it's really telling you. It takes a particular approach to to uh, valuing your lifetime social security benefits. Um, I won't get deep into that because I want to mention some other tools, but uh, the issue I have is it's, it's probably a good tool for people who their social security isn't a make or break decision. They're just trying to statistically make the best choice uh, involving kind of the ideas of break even and present value and things like that. Uh, but they're not looking at social security the way we do, which is favoring its um, value as a longevity protection tool. If that's the case, then doing an analysis the way open social security does by default, you can change some of the things on it though, uh, isn't probably the best use of that. So, uh, but a lot of people use that and, and like it a lot. Um, so it kind of depends on how you're viewing social security. We view it a very specific way, and that is its power as a longevity protection tool, lifetime guaranteed secure income to cover in our method, in our approach, your minimum dignity floor expenses. So we're focused more on the long-term benefits, not the break-even, you know, comparative present value to determine what's your statistically you know, best chance of getting the most money lifetime out of it based on your median life expectancy or mortality tables. So um, moving into the paid category, there's a couple. Um, Social Security Solutions is very popular, and it's available as both a tool for an individual to use. And I think that you can do use their tool for as little as $20 as a complete do-it-yourselfer. And then they actually offer packages where they'll uh, having uh, one of their people consult with you to talk to you about it. And that obviously increases the cost of a fair amount there. And then uh, the one that we personally use, the, the, the we use at our firm is MaximizeMySocialSecurity.com, which is the tool put together by um, Larry Kotlikoff, who... Um, you know, was in, in the public eye. He's a very well-known economist from Boston University that does a ton of work in the social security space. He's and, a former presidential candidate. And a, yeah, and that. former yes. presidential candidate. Not 
wasn't particularly successful, but you know, <laughs> most people who run for president aren't, right? There's only only one that makes it each time. So um, uh, what we like about his tool, it is available individually for like 39 bucks, uh, and that's for a year. So you can play around in the tool and run all different things that you want to look at um, for a year for $39. They offer um, for both uh, Social Security Solutions and Maximize My Social Security uh, offer packages for professionals. But uh, the reason why we use Maximize My Social Security is it does everything that uh, we need it to do. And... um, it's a really attractive price, in my opinion. It's three hundred dollars a year for for a, a financial advisor to use that tool on as many client cases as they want to use. So that's kind of nice, and it's probably not as polished looking or fancy looking website as Social Security Solutions has. Uh, but Social Security Solutions is quite a lot more expensive. Um, than uh, maximize my social security, which sounds like I'm making a pitch for maximize. This is all public information. You can just go look and see. It's you know you go to the pricing page of each one. Each one of these is very different between the two. So nothing against um, uh, social security solutions. I played with a bit, and it looks you know very powerful and would do everything that maximize does, and and maybe a few things I don't I don't realize that it could do, but. For our purposes, uh, Maximize does the job. And when I say for our purposes, because we're looking at Social Security mainly as a longevity protection tool, we're using these tools to avoid what I brought up at the beginning of my response here, which is to avoid just using the Social Security benefit statement because it could be quite different than this, the client's reality. We want as, as uh, accurate of an estimate for their Social Security benefits based on their specific situation as possible and maximize my com and these other tools allow you to do that. We can put in their earnings history and then we can put in their earnings moving forward, their knowing their retirement date, these types of things. Um, so we get a, a what we believe to be a more reliable uh, estimate for their social security benefits, which factors into our approach because we're very con- you know very interested in the social security amount because we're going to rely on it to contribute to covering the minimum dignity floors, minimum dignity floor expenses for the rest of these uh, you know folks' lives. Um, so, um, and then every once in a while it'll pick up on a strategy that we hadn't really considered and it'll suggest, you know, a claiming strategy between the spouses or maybe there's child benefits or some of the more complicated cases, uh, that I mentioned before, hard to do by hand. It'll help us kind of take a look at a few of those to see if there's something we, uh, you know, wouldn't be as obvious that we might want to consider doing. So, um, long answer to a short what you said a a, a, a light question <laughs> but it was light but i um, think it was it was helpful uh, it really was and i just want to add i very really add my own point of view on social security because you are the the professional uh, at the firm who specializes in that the one thing that i would want to caution you do it yourself is though and chris feel free to uh, interrupt me and say jim no that's stupid but <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> My thoughts of this, these programs, they're going to do what they've been programmed to do, no pun intended. But just because the program says this is the optimal claiming strategy for you, and Chris rightly pointed out, they approach it differently. And he rightly pointed out how 
I have always viewed Social Security. I may not do the Social Security planning anymore. In fact, I don't do the Social Security planning anymore. And I don't generally deliver retirement plans anymore. And I'm not involved in that aspect. And that just has to do with the firm growing and me being pulled in different directions. But the firm has never lost sight of what we try to do, which is to protect minimum dignity floor and um, optimize Social Security from that measure. So some of these tools will look at it differently, especially that one Chris mentioned that uses statistics, not necessarily statistics, but probability of survivorship at each age and discounts and does all that. All of these are fine approaches, but just because the software, even with us, if Chris and his team does a projection and the software is saying, Chris, this is what your client should do. But Chris is sitting there and sees things that are more related to the life of this individual and what's happening in special circumstances it may not be the right, it may be the optimized, but it may not be the appropriate social security claiming strategy. So you should take what these software programs push out there, but then look at your situation and does it make sense? Maybe it doesn't. And you're going to go with a different choice. It's all I kind of want to add. Don't yeah, yeah, religiously stick. Yeah, it comes down to the they're giving you a standalone um, optimization that's only considering Social Security and no other part of your overall financial situation. Social Security is just a piece of your overall situation, and how that piece fits into the the greater plan should be considered. And sometimes, and that's exactly what Jim is talking about here. Sometimes in the broader plan, there can be all sorts of evidence to use what the calculator says is not necessarily the optimal approach uh, because of other factors that, you know, in balance where it fits in the plan, um, Social Security is just more valuable applied different than what they claim to be optimal. So that's, you know, I totally agree with what you said. And that, and that's why is it's, these aren't asking you all of your situation. This isn't of, of a comprehensive financial planning tool. This is simply a social security standalone analysis tool is what these are. So keep that perspective as well. All right, good. I'm glad you agree on that. Cause I got the idea as you were chatting, I was actually mm -hmm. thinking folks, and this applies. So even though this is a little rabbit hole, it's a very shallow rabbit hole. The rabbit got tired <laughs> of digging and he backed out. So, where I'm going with this is we have tax planning software here at the firm. We have tax prep software and two types of tax planning software. The tax planning software, we have what we call short-term tax planning and long-term tax planning. The long-term one gives us many, many, many choices to choose from. And it actually suggests what it feels is the top choice and then the second then the third then the fourth we don't necessarily, oh, oh, this is the top choice according to this brilliant software. That's the one we use. We will look at the choices, not all of them, because sometimes there's literally hundreds where they just change one variable by a tenth of a percent. 
So you have to keep things in perspective. But we will often start reviewing a handful of what we consider to be viable options. Yes, paying attention to their top choice. But I think you'll agree, Chris, not all the time is the top choice chosen at Mm -hmm. all. Because when we start, we do all our planning here as a team, which is something I insist on. So when we have a CPA and the CFPs uh, all on uh, a group meeting and we're collaborating together and chatting this through, we often see, wow, yeah, I see how the software chooses number one, but you're, you're right, Chris, because of that. And Jim, you're just brilliant and always right. And we're going to believe everything you say. That's what my staff says to me, folks. Then they're going to say, we're going to take all that into account as well. And we may choose option three or four. Do you agree? Especially about me being brilliant. Uh, well, let's start with the other part first. Um, the, uh, uh, yeah, for a variety of reasons, I oftentimes joke with people that sometimes the recommended approach by the software is, uh, uh, just barely short of, of the building the space shuttle as far as complexity goes. And sometimes, you know, there's, there's a benefit in my minds. Don't discount the value of simplicity. Also, sometimes the top choice will only be the top choice because of, and it's particularly sensitive to one or two variables that very well, you know, when we're, when you're looking to the future, you're making assumptions. And if that top choice would rapidly fall from the top, if, if one of those assumptions is just a little bit different in reality, that's also something to be sensitive to, to look at that, that, you know, we're, we don't want to pick a choice that's the best only in one very, very narrow set of, of, of variables, Right, it'd be better to pick one that's close to the top, that's robust, that that's going to be the top, even if there's some drift one way or another in some of these things. It's it's those types of factors that that you know you know still to this day um, necessitates humans <laughs> to look at all this, and not a uh, you know a robo that is is going to do all this retirement and tax planning and social security planning and everything. It's it's not yet the the AI is not not good enough yet to uh to do that type of view on these things perfect i just wanted to add that because i thought Mm -hmm. they tie in together the the don't don't rely solely on the software we never do Mm -hmm. we use the software to give us data and in my opinion suggestions yeah but then we go back and look and it's more i don't want to say more often than not but i've never really measured but meaningful enough number of times when we don't choose the top choices from the software. So keep that in mind, especially if you're an advisor, a young advisor listening to this. Don't fall into a lull that you don't have to learn anything. You don't have to collaborate. You don't have to to evaluate things. You're just going to rely on the software. Don't do that. Okay. So now we're going to get into some Irma questions. We have a lot. I chose this one, Chris, um, for a number of reasons. First of all, they're from Colorado and like to garden. So right Mm. there, they won me over. But um, the other reason I wanted to get to it, as you'll see, folks, I often say financial planning or retirement planning, which is a subset of broader financial planning is part art, part science. And sometimes 
you have to look at things. You might use the science part of financial planning. That These are the IRMA brackets, and we'll explain on future shows what we mean by that. That's pretty much set in stone. Cong- not Congress, but Congress made the rules that creates the brackets. So uh, IRS will set the IRMA brackets every year. And you have to go by those. That's the science part of IRMA. That's the science. The art part is opinion. And this person, I thought, made a really compelling case that essentially says, Chris, is, and you'll see where I'm going when I read it, but I, my take is she's sitting there saying, what the hell's the big deal? And should I be paying attention to this? And that's key. That's an opinion. You're going to see some people that absolutely dogmatically, especially you do-it-yourselfers, will do everything around never entering an Irma bracket. And God forbid paying a slightly higher Medicare premium for a year, because it only lasts a year. They're going to look every year to see if Irma applies to you. And some people are so loath to enter, especially the initial brackets, as this emailer points out when I read it, the initial two brackets aren't too, especially the first bracket, it's not that bad of an extra penalty. Now you start getting consistently into the top brackets, yeah, the penalty is fairly steep, but you have to be raking in some serious cash. And relative to the amount of income someone in those upper Irma tiers is having, the Irma penalty is minimal. It's, it's, they, they probably spend more on dining out, sometimes at one restaurant maybe, than what the extra cost is going to be. So I wanted to lead with this little series we'll be doing of trying to address one Irma question a week with this one. Mostly to allow you to take what what I've started and continue, because you do this a lot, Chris, on the planning side. And when we plan, we sometimes have to tell clients, you know, we're going to push you into this bracket on purpose. Here's why. And it's no big deal. So let me get to her question. Dear Jim and Chris, I love, 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 all Mm -hmm. caps, by the way, your podcast, especially Jim. Does it really say that? I was waiting for that. You usually always say it doesn't say that. No, she doesn't say that. But she does mention gardening. She says, your podcast has given me so much to think about as my husband and I soon retire. I know this won't get me to the top of the list, but I am writing from the beautiful state of Colorado. And I agree with Jim that gardening here is tough. Well, listener, it did get you to the top of the list. So see that? You didn't know what you were getting into. But she points out something, folks, that I don't talk enough about. And probably because I live in the birthed bubble, which I've complained about repeatedly on this show, that this pot, this little town of Colorado, because of the layout of the land, many, many storms pass over me. Today, I don't think I'll miss it. I think I'll get some today. She must live in an area that doesn't, because here's what she writes, Chris. But not because of the dry climate you complain about, but because of the darn hail. Every year I get a beautiful garden, and at some point it gets plummeted by hail. We do get a ton of hail in Colorado. Thankfully, I've been in my house for 12 years. I've only had one hailstorm that caused me to have to replace my roof, and I consider myself lucky for that. Mm-hmm. There are places in Colorado that will get nailed with hail consistently every year, 
And I think you'll agree because you grew up out here. That was your cue to say uh, yes. Yeah, Colorado is one of the top states, so the front range of Colorado in particular because of how you know, how things roll off the mountains and the, the heating and then the plains. Uh, it's just a bad combination that creates a lot of hail here. Uh, I don't know if it's the top hail location. I think anywhere, it is. But it's close. It's, it, it's in I, the top. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I would go out and say I think it is the worst state, but I could be wrong. Mostly driven by the fact that it is so developed. So relatively speaking, it may not get the worst hail. Maybe Wyoming is worse, but there's very few people. There's 900,000 people in Wyoming for the entire state. There's 900,000 people just in Denver Metro itself, millions, excuse me, in Denver proper. The Metro has millions. So you take all that concentration of homes and then throw the heavy hailstorm. I think the insurance companies are saying Colorado is the worst from that standpoint. Okay, enough of that. Get to her question. My question is a general one about Irma, which many retirees feel very passionate about and often cite as a major reason to do Roth conversions. I'm not sure yet we should jump through a bunch of financial hoops over it, but maybe I'm missing something. If my husband and I don't do conversions or take any 401k withdrawals before RMDs kick in, we will most likely be paying IRMA based on the RMD calculator I used in the second tier our extra premiums for Pot B and Pot D will total $1,720 a year. I believe that's each. I don't believe that's for the no, two that, of them. No, that sounds like about the total <clears throat> for the two of them. Oh, for the two of them in the second tier? Okay. I'll buy that. Well, I think I what have... she's talking about the second tier is... Um... Because in my mind, you know, I always look at this because we're looking at this for people all the time. Oh, the first and tier In pays my nothing. mind, um, the first tier technically is free. The second tier total for a couple is usually somewhere around $1,700, $1,800. So when, when you mention that, okay. uh, she's got to be talking about the what we call, what we refer to as the first tier, the first tier where you have to pay it. But it is technically in the in the table, the second tier. Uh, because the first tier is free, we just right. you know we talk about it a little differently than that ourselves. But right, I that, I realize now where I made that mistake. The government tracks the first tier as free. Like just trying to make you think you're getting something. Oh, look at that! First tier is free for everybody. Um, we just kind of look at it, the first tier when taxes kick in. Okay, so that makes sense. Seventeen hundred. But my reaction is this: So what? Yes, I suppose it can be thought of as an extra tax but it's still far less than what my current employer's health insurance plan is and will be significantly less than our insurance costs once we are retired, but not yet at Medicare age. By the time my RMDs kick in, and remember, folks, that's not until she's 75. She's 51. Her husband is 56. By the time my RMDs kick in, we may end up in tier three. A little more painful, but again, far less than our current insurance costs and our um, retired pre-Medicare costs will be. Here's some information for context. I'm only going to read this real quickly so Chris can kind of take some of what she's saying and, and just talk openly about it. I'm 51. My husband is 56. We work in a school system and will receive pensions. 
their combined pensions will be about 155000 a year. They are eligible for a COLA in it, but it's, it's really tricky out here in Colorado, the COLA. I won't get too much into it, but it's going to be very, very minimal. And she points that out, maybe 1%, 2% a year if they even keep it. Colorado has played with their COLA adjustments to their pension system in the 24 years that I've been here consistently. Okay. She says, we each have Roth IRAs of about $240,000. Uh, we have a, let's see, my husband has 480000 in his 401k. She has 187000 in her 401k. And they have a joint account with another 227000 Why am I sharing all this, folks? They have massive guaranteed pension income, as she points out. Even if she does lots of conversions, her mere income is going to be keeping her into these Irma tiers. So should she be paying attention to this or not? They have good tax diversification with always, maybe, and never taxable accounts. And relatively speaking, they're always taxable 401k style accounts don't have 80, 90% of their wealth tied up in it as many of you do-it-yourselfers do. So with all of that in mind, Chris, what are your thoughts on her situation when she says, am I overlooking something? Should I be concerned about Irma? One thing she doesn't point out, there's not really much she personally can do about it because of the massive income benefit that she's entitled to. But don't just answer this tied to her. Talk to everyone now generally because many people are the mere opposite of her. They're going to have several million dollars in always taxable accounts. And they could benefit from getting money out of that. And one of the longer term benefits will be to be out of Irma for the rest of your life post RMDs. This woman isn't going to have that luxury because of her income. Anyways, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I do. Uh, her her point initially uh, when she says, who cares? I do think people um, fear Irma too much and let it drive too many of their decisions because they hear about Irma being this, you know, like the big bad wolf. And, and it starts kind of gently, as she pointed out. And I'm going to speak to it uh, to, for, I think, a little better I guess easier for me to envision and and how I describe it to people more as the monthly penalty, you know, how much extra per month are you going to pay as you hit each one of these tiers? And I'm going to talk kind of averages. It can, it's affected by which part D premium that you end up picking. The part B premium standard is, is the same for everybody, but part D there's some variations in there. So, uh, if you're doing your own Irma calculations, uh, they might be a little slightly different than what I'm saying. But somewhere in the 78 to $80 range per person when you hit what she calls the second tier, which is the first tier. And so it's not a massive penalty. And so when you're doing your decisions of recognizing income, which is kind of where what leads people to Roth conversion strategies... A lot of times they'll say, "Well, oh, I can't do Irma. I don't want to. I don't want to convert and and penetrate the Irma bracket." The first one is not particularly scary. Um, then when you go to the next bracket, which is on the table, the third bracket, that seventy-eight dollars a month then start to approach about two hundred dollars a month per person. Now it's getting a little more painful. Um, 
and, and that bracket is not very uh, large uh, before you're over $300 a month in the next bracket, what's, what would be the fourth bracket? So you can see how it kind of accelerates up in the, the very top tier, you're paying almost an extra 475, you know, $480 per month per person in that top tier. But that's a married filing joint with, in, you know, modified adjusted gross income over 750,000 plus or something. It's a huge, huge, huge number. So if you're down in the second, third tier. Yes, it's a penalty, but but keep that in mind. And and Irma, remember, is a yearly event, uh, meaning if you trigger it in one year because of some activity, it doesn't put you permanently for life in that Irma bracket. And And that's the case when people do Roth conversions in a particular year, unless you're going to do Roth conversions for the rest of your lives. Uh, it's not a permanent thing. It's just in the years that you do that. So keep that in mind. And I do agree with her that a lot of people are more fearful of that first penalty tier, that second tier of Irma, than they probably should be. Because it's it's kind of gentle in its punishment, if you will. Now, she, of course, is facing, and if you think about it, she's kind of, when you have a pension, it's almost like a forced version of what people with 401ks do to manage their taxes. And this is something I probably haven't described. Uh, This kind of just came to me as you're reading her question, Jim. But if you think about it, when someone has a, instead of a pension, has a maybe a few million dollars in retirement accounts instead, if they're pushing off distributions till later, there it's piled up and and the the solution for that is oftentimes hey instead of waiting until rmd age when there's going to be massive distributions that happen let's start taking some out a little bit at a time to kind of spread it out to keep you down uh in more manageable tax brackets over your lifespan well that's what a pension kind of does right instead of it, it's not zero 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 and then huge amounts it's in her case i think you said about like hundred and fifty thousand dollars or something like that uh, coming out every each and every year, smoothed out throughout the retirement. Co- so the pension kind of does what we uh, many times encourage people to do, which is spread out the tax recognition or the income recognition over your retirement instead of having it um, spike up later in these massive RMDs. So, you know, her circumstance is less common now. Fewer and fewer people have pensions. So those of you the more common group that have these, you know, large IRA 401ks as the main resource for your retirement, you got to keep that in mind. And for her, she's going to be really, you know, fairly close to that, that second Irma tier where she starts to pay an Irma penalty just with the pension income doesn't quite get there. The first Irma tier I think now is about 185 ish. And she's, she says her pension is 155. But she doesn't have a whole lot of room to recognize more income before she triggers that first uh, penalty tier, which is the second tier in her uh, description. Um, those of you, you know, piled up the other way need to be maybe considering either distributing or converting early in retirement during what we call the tax planning window to kind of smooth that out. And don't just arbitrarily say, well, I absolutely will not penetrate, you know, any Irma tiers because it should all be driven by what is your future tax situation look like? And is there a particular scenario, uh, the 210 thing with, you know, the Jim promotes, uh, or he came up with, we all talk about it, 
But, uh, you know, is there a, maybe one of those three categories that will face a really severe tax punishment if something isn't done? And I'm thinking of the survivorship, even in her case, because in her case, if there's uh, those pen- that pension income is going to continue uh, almost, you know, at 100% or some high level for a single individual, she might not have to be worried much about Irma as a couple but she might be setting things, you know, there might be a really severe Irma penalty uh, for a single survivor that I would say she definitely needs to look at. She didn't mention that um, in, in what you read, but that's definitely something that should be looked at. It's it's very common for people to have manageable Irma exposure as a couple, but then as a survivor, we look at it and, and oh my gosh, they just suddenly jump up, you know, two or three tiers uh, as a single survivor because of survivorship pension and or RMDs now for those accounts that are all being shoved through the single brackets after, you know, the first spouse is gone. So yeah, she's are, in a bit of a bind. Thoughts, so. Yeah, she's in a bit of a bind, though, with that guaranteed secure income forever. I mean, it's a good problem to have. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, um, a, it's a good bind, abs- right? Yeah, abs- absolutely. And and getting if, if having that wonderful pension, and I'm sure many of our listeners would love to have $155,000 guaranteed for the rest of their life, not with a massive COLA increase, as you rightly pointed out in your, your longer email. I didn't read everything. But even if you got one, two, two and a half percent adjustments to it every year, every little bit helps. If that massive pension means you have to pay uh, 1700 or 2000 or 2500 a year in Irma surcharges, many people would take that any day. You're going to give me 155000 and I just have to pay 2000 more or 3000 more for this? It's a no-brainer. But I do want to just make quick mention to you, listener, and everyone, one of the difficulties with Irma and another reason why we try not to get overly concerned with a short-term push into an Irma bracket when doing tax planning, not necessarily for this listener because of her massive secure income, but for all you other do-it-yourselfers with millions in IRAs, and you're going to just convert up to tier one in the sense you're not going to leave the free, quote unquote free, into the surcharge tier you refuse to. Irma brackets have been played with since they were created in the late 1990s. I think it was 98 when it first came out. I could be wrong on that. But for the first 10 years, they never increased them for inflation like they were supposed to. And I believe it was even, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, I believe it was for 10 years it went frozen. But I remember under the Obama administration, and if you're political, I am not throwing stones, so chill out. But as under his administration, they said their goal would be to get 25% of Americans into Irma. They felt Medicare premiums were too low. They wanted people to pay more. And they were proponents of freezing the brackets. What if future politicians take that approach? What if they lower the brackets? They can. What if they freeze the brackets? They may. They have in the past. 
it will not surprise me if future Congresses, I'm not saying anytime soon, so don't panic, but a decade from now, this country is in debt up to their eyeballs. Social Security gets all the attention of being underfunded. They can fix that relatively easily by pushing out the retirement age, as we pointed out recently, not for anyone in their 60s and retired. Don't freak out of there. But for younger Americans, like they did to Chris and I in the 80s, when we were just in our 20s and had no idea what they were doing, they pushed our retirement age out to 67. So fixing Social Security is easy. Medicare. Medicare is far more underfunded than Social Security. Medicare sucks more general revenue money than Social Security. So I could see them messing with the brackets in the future. I could see them changing them. So getting some of your assets into Roths early in your tax planning window, which is generally after you stop work and before RMDs begin and before your full secure income, which is generally Social Security begins at 70 and RMDs at 73, in the future 75, that window for some of you could be a decade or more for others, might be a year or two or less. But that window is a wonderful time to start doing some conversions. And don't just look at Irma through how the rules work today. Recognize that politicians have been very open and honest. They want Medicare premiums to be higher. They don't want to raise premiums on lower wage earners in retirement. But most of you listening, you're their sweet spot. You know that. You're who they're going after, and they're going to want to get you into the Irma brackets and paying more. So maybe the evil you know today is better than the evil that could be in the future. And dealing with it today and going into one or two or three tiers in an effort to remove the likely scenario that I'm painting because they've done it in the past and I swear to you they will do it in the future. To insulate yourself from that and from Medicare surcharges, Irma surcharges in the future that could be quite significant to me is worth taking a bite of the poison apple right now. That's just my thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's as you pointed out, Medicare's funding has got major problems, and it's like all these programs. It's a cash inflow, cash outflow imbalance problem, and raising premiums, whether it be for everyone, which they've been hesitant to do. They they use this Irma approach in order to raise premiums only on people with a lot more income and resources, as as. Uh, you know, in their view of a fairer way of, of collecting more of the cash inflow side of it. But uh, yeah, it's not, it's not, I mean, in my opinion, this isn't an arbitrary punishment of some kind where they're just looking to zing people. It's a matter of they've got to come up with revenue, cash inflow into the system and or cash outflow reduction in some combination before things really start to fall apart in the Medicare system. So it is uh, problematic and needs attention. And I agree that they 
with the current Irma tiers, that has not balanced things. That hasn't gotten us to a, oh, okay, now, you know, because some people are paying a lot more in premiums, we're good to go now. We're still out of whack inflow outflow. So there's more changes coming. I don't know exactly what they will be, but may very well be what Jim mentioned, uh, higher premiums for certain people. And if they're going to tie it to income, one of your best defenses is do something to control income recognition later in life, aka consider Roth conversions or conscious distributions from taxable accounts earlier in retirement uh, before they can implement some of these changes. So just where the, you know, and this is definitely an art situation. We don't know exactly what it'll be or when it would be implemented or for sure if it will be implemented. But if that's something that you would regret a lot, if it, if you didn't do something now to prevent it, that's probably your incentive to go ahead and, you know, look at some reasonable amounts earlier. So, right. Yeah. Just, okay. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go too deep yeah. into that because there's two more questions that I really hope we can get to. Okay. One is really quick. So I'll do that one first. Okay. Okay. This one, I apologize to this listener. He sent this over a year ago Ooh. and I found it <clears throat> quite accidentally um, when I uh, was searching for uh, annuity questions. And this question popped up, but it really has nothing to do with annuity. And it because I had the word insurance, I put annuity and insurance in there. So this, you, when, when I read it, you'll see, yeah, we got to answer this guy's question. Okay. So he sent it last year. I apologize for taking so long to getting to it. And for all listeners to know, I can't get to every single question. We, we just get too many. And Chris refuses to do a four-hour show. So until I can get him to either do more Q&A shows or extend this one to four hours, I can't get all the questions answered. Okay. It says, hello, Chris and Jim, the man. Wow. Thank you, listener. I love your show and thank you for sharing your knowledge and wisdom. My question is about life insurance. I currently have a term policy that lasts for 35 years, but I bought the policy 20 years ago and have 15 years remaining. I'm just 48 years old. I have a net worth right now of about $800,000 and I don't have any debts. Okay. One thing, this is the only background he gives us. I'm going to pause here for a second, Chris. I wish he would have told me if he has a family, if he has children, if any of those children are going to require special assistance or care for the rest of his life. I don't have any of that background. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming because he never mentioned it, he doesn't have it. It's the only thing I can think of. Hmm. I don't know for certain, though, because that would change the, the answer I'm about to give substantially. So I'm going to approach this question as if he's single with no children, no wife. But when I do approach it that way, I then think, why does he have a term policy yeah. then? Yeah. Um, I don't quite get it because I'm single, no children, no wife, and don't have insurance, life insurance. So anyways, I just wanted to specify that. Here's the meat and potatoes, though, because, well, anyways, I'll get into it. I have a friend who has been trying to get me to buy an index universal life permanent policy from them 
saying my term policy is like renting a house. He says I need to own my insurance like I own my own house. My thoughts are, in 15 years, I will have doubled, if not tripled, my net worth, and I will still have no debt. I will be more than likely retired in 15 years and starting Social Security soon after I retire. The IUL policy, which stands for Indexed Universal Life, folks, the IUL policy is going to cost me $1,000 a month, but I only pay 90 a month now for my term policy. I don't understand the reason he is trying to get me to change. Should I keep what I have or consider the Index Universal Life policy? Please help. Something does not feel right. I'll answer this question first with the cynical me. Cynical Jim. Do you know what cynical Jim is thinking, Chris? Yeah. <laughs> and and, and uh, that's an interesting friend he has, if this is true. Well, I'm not making it up. No. If what the cynical Jim is assuming is true. Oh, yes. So what do you think cynical Jim is thinking? That the juicy commission involved with the IUL is driving the friend's advice. Absolutely. That's my initial take, listener, but I don't have enough background. If you are single, then I, I question why you have the term policy to begin with and, and what it was trying to do. But perhaps you wanted to, to protect um, uh, nieces, nephews, parents, if you weren't here. I have seen some single people do that uh, who have nothing but they're saying, hey, um, if I die, I want my parents to have some of the money. They don't have much. I want to take care of them as they age. But if I'm not here and can't, can't do that, I want some money for them. And that could be what he was doing. So with that said, the cynic in me first jumped to the conclusion, as Chris did, it's the Juicy Commission, IUL policies. They commission outrageously to the agents selling them. That's why a whole cottage industry has popped up of uh, life insurance as retirement plans, LIRP, using Index Universal. Index Universal Life, folks, I'm not going to get into it on this show, is just the shiny new, new swivel, not swivel, but the shiny new, God, I haven't fished in so long, and lore, I can't think of the name, shiny new swivel lore that the insurance industry is throwing into the pond of, of consumer fish. Years ago, it was universal life. Then that blew up in the 80s. And they came out in the 90s with variable universal life. Remember that whole run, Chris? Mm -hmm. That blew up. And then in the 2000s, they came out late 1998 was when the first uh, policy came out. But in, in the 2000s, the new shiny toy is index universal life. And then they get you to buy it because of your fear of taxes and you're going to be able to borrow from this. And it's so great. It's so wonderful. It's all BS, folks. It's all designed to get you to buy an expensively high commissioned policy. I would believe the insurance companies and I would believe the insurance agents if these policies were not sold by commission, 
if they were solely sold by a negotiated fee that you would have with the insurance agent, where the insurance agent discloses to you in dollars what they are going to charge to put you in this commission-free index universal life policy, which would have substantially higher cap rates, substantially higher participation rates, substantially better benefits because the insurance company isn't paying the outrageous commission. If they got rid of the commission and allowed you to sit across the desk from an insurance agent and negotiate a fee with them, how much are you going to charge to put me in this policy? And then you could take his fee and go to someone else for their fee and someone else for their fee because the insurance company is going to be providing the exact same policy no matter who you buy it from and allow you to shop. Maybe then I wouldn't be so damn cynical. But that's not how this works. No. And they're getting paid a commission. They don't have to disclose to you what that commission is. It's thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars, depending on how big of a policy you're buying. And you don't see it. Of course, they're going to tell you what, Chris? Oh, you, you don't, don't pay, pay me. It. The insurance company pays. Insurance company pays me. Yeah. It's not coming from you. <laughs> bull. Yeah. And I said this all the time as well. It's bull, and it's bull because if they didn't have to pay, they being insurance company, didn't have to pay the commission, they theoretically could give you a greater benefit. Wouldn't that be wonderful and allow you to better comparisonly shop insurance companies as well? Hey, this company is offering me this, and this agent wants $1,000 for me to put, uh, for them to put me in it. This insurance company is offering me that, and the agent wants $800. I'm just making these numbers up. Conceptually, that's how it would work. The reason why this will never happen, you're not going to sit there if the friend had to tell you, I'm going to charge you $14,000. You're going to be sitting there saying, excuse me? You're going to what? Yeah, it's going to cost you $14,000 or $8,000 or $3,000 or $5,000, whatever it is because these commissions are massive. You would question, wait a minute here, who's benefiting, you or me? And why? Why am I going to pay you all this money? What am I getting? What are you doing for it? You're going to help me put a policy in place that contractually you're not obligated to do anything on? That's why the industry will never change. The agent isn't going to want to sit across from you and tell you what they're earning or, or better yet, negotiate a fee with you. I think insurance regulators could put a stop to this shenanigans if they were to mandate the cost. The cost that you are paying is fully disclosed in dollars. And the revenue that the agent is going to receive is fully disclosed in dollars. But the regulators will never do that. Never. And the cynic in me gets even deeper into the relationship between companies and regulators. So anyways, that's all I'll say. I can't say for certain that's why, but you're asking me rhetorically almost like, why is he doing this? I don't get it. It's $1,000 a month and I'm only paying 90. Yeah, and he paid the point that you you would look at too. If If there's no need for permanent insurance... Why is one looking at permanent insurance, which, as he pointed out, is very, very expensive? And there's other types of permanent insurance. 
than this. This is not the only kind available. So if you did have a need for permanent insurance, I would make sure to look at all the different options to see which fits your situation best. What he shared, I agree with you, Jim, from what he shared about his situation, it doesn't look to me either like he has an obvious need for permanent insurance. So that would be the first question to the friend uh, that he should pose is, why do you think I need this? And it isn't the the little uh, line that he learned in his training, his sales training at the insurance company, oh, you should own your policy, not rent it. Like you uh, own that, your house. Yeah, yeah that's, I a sales, that, that, that's a sales, a sales talking line. point. Yeah, yeah, that, that's not the reason to do it. It's, it's gee, you know, what, what is my need and, and is this the best tool to satisfy that need? That's where the discussion should be going. And maybe the friend knows about more about the situation and there is a need and he just didn't verbalize it very well to the person. And, and maybe there is a good reason for him to consider a policy like this. I didn't hear it as you read the question. Right. And I often say, I don't have boat insurance. And then I say to Chris, Chris, do you know why I don't have boat mm-hmm. insurance? And Chris will say. Because you have no boat. Because I have no boat. I don't have life insurance because I don't have anyone who's going to suffer an economic or financial hardship if I die. Now, if I had a wife and children, I definitely would have life insurance. Mm-hmm. And I have life so, insurance. But Chris has life insurance because mm-hmm. he has a wife, six kids, and who knows how many dogs at any given time in his house. Mm-hmm. So there will be an economic hardship suffered at his death. Your email didn't give me any reason to believe there is a more altruistic reason that your friend is recommending this, that you have a need for permanent insurance. And he is picking up that this term policy only has 15 more years and you need permanent insurance. And if that was the case, and IUL is still not the policy I personally would have gone with for that. But Anyways, that's that's it. I don't want to get too deep. I don't know if we're going to have a chance to get to this last question or not, Chris. Um, how much time do we have tight. left? Um, we have about eight minutes left. Eight minutes. Um, then I'm going to do a different question. I was going to do a question that had to do with uh, something we call Chris a liquidity account. I'm going to hold that off until next time. This one is kind of a, sh- a shout out for you. And because you're going to be answering it, you can keep it short. <laughs> okay. I have my own thoughts on this that I could really go off on, but I'll, I'll keep it short for okay. Chris. It says, hello, Jim. Excuse me. Hello, Chris and Jim and the rest of the t- Okay. He made a mistake right there. It's Jim and Chris. But anyways. <laughs> Not in went- alphabetical order. <laughs> <laughs> True. Maybe went alphabetically. Hello, Jim. Excuse me. I'm so used to saying Jim first. Hello, Chris, Jim, and the rest of the team. I'm in my late 30s, and I like to listen to y'all's show. He must be from the South, I'm guessing. Y'all's show to hear about things I may need to plan for now and in the future to prepare for my retirement. But when you did the deep dive on the fun number and the minimum dignity floor, that's why I want to bring this up. It kind of ties into the new EDU series we're doing. It was helpful to hear what kinds of considerations go into those calculations, and you guys provided that. However, I'm a little too far off from retirement, in my opinion, to feel good for what a lot of these numbers will be for me in the future. Mm -hmm. So my question is, being 20 years from retirement, 
Can you suggest approximate assumptions to make for someone who's too uncertain at my age, or I concede maybe too lazy, to go through the detailed method you laid out in your series? And instead, how can I best figure what I need for a rough estimate of the total funds at the start of my retirement? Is there an approximation similar to the 4% rule that says you need 25 times your annual spending that I can use to determine what my assets should be at retirement? I want to maintain a certain fund number and minimum dignity floor. Can you think of something maybe, and then he gave a mathematical example that just confused me, so I won't get into it. So I'm asking to see if I'm on track. How do I see if I'm on track with my current accumulation plans to be able to cover my minimum dignity floor, but also have a meaningful fund number? It's a good question, and it lets us admit that our approach with this very um, detailed analysis of the components of your retirement spending, that we start with the minimum dignity floor and the categories, food, utilities, transportation, housing, health care, all that, is completely inappropriate to use in your 30s. I'll just put it right out there. This, I don't think, is applicable because, in my opinion, you don't even know what kind of lifestyle you're going to become accustomed to at this point. You don't know what kind of lifestyle you want to recreate or maintain in retirement because your career path is yet to be formed. I think my personal opinion is that you should not waste time trying to apply details that are just wild guesses picked out of the air at this point. And instead, save reasonable amounts of money, maybe if you want some idea or some vision of what the target should be, think about where you think your career path is going. And it's just think, right? We don't know how you're going to get promoted and raises and moving to a different career and all that other stuff that's going to happen between 30 and 50. Um, But if you could do some predictions, if you think you're on a very specific path and you're going to do whatever it takes to make that path happen, maybe your prediction will be fairly reliable. But otherwise, I think you're worrying about stuff that is too early to worry about. Once you get into your later 40s, early 50s, your view of kind of the life you've created, the life you've become accustomed to, the resources you've been able to amass will start to come into view. And it's at that point that I think you can start to apply some of these distribution assumptions, which is really what it's all about, or spending assumptions to to have the life that now you envision for retirement. Your vision of retirement in your 30s, I hate to tell you this, but by the time you're 50, it could be wildly, your reality could be wildly different, much less or much, much more than what you're experiencing right now. So I think it's too early to get into the kind of detailed planning we do because by the time we're applying our approach, people know what their careers looked like. They know what they've amassed. They know what they want to accomplish. They've got a nice, you know, clear understanding. They've learned what they like to do, what they don't like to do. They're what they haven't been able to do while working that they want to make sure to do in retirement. It just allows us now to have, numbers applied to these goals that are reasonably predictable. 
So, you know, Jim, you can chime in a little bit. We only have a couple yeah, of minutes. Yeah, my, my but... thoughts, because I know we don't have much mm-hmm. time. I agree with everything Chris said. Obviously, we work together. We're, we, we sometimes think alike. And I'm just sitting here imagining myself in my 30s. I was working as a cop. Mm-hmm. And my minimum dignity floor, which remember, folks, should have been called minimum lifestyle floor. My lifestyle in my 30s is totally different now that I turned 60. But all through my 50s, it's it's different. Mm-hmm. What I now realize I want to do. And the in my 30s, I would have been loath to go to a restaurant and drop a couple hundred bucks on a dinner with my girlfriend. No freaking way. And I just wouldn't have done that. Now I enjoy going. I, not all the time. I cringe sometimes at these restaurants. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, I will go to a very exclusive and nice place with Rachel and spend an insane amount of money on a dinner. I want to be able to do that probably even more when I'm 75 or 80. So you're, you can't even begin to imagine what your minimum dignity floor is going to look like. And your fun number. Now, dining out is not part of MDF, folks, but fun number is. What I would encourage him to do is save as much as you can. You should start saving 10% of your salary. And if you did since your 20s, then you're probably on track. If you didn't, you might want to be saving 15 or 20% of your income now. You want to retire in 20 years. You're going to have a long go-go phase. And that's you just need- for retirement, folks. So yes. he's not talking about for all possible lifetime goals. Just for the retirement goal is kind of where the, those guidelines are coming from he's mentioning. Right. Thank you. Save as much as you can, but acknowledge the importance of secure income. Get to understand your social security benefit. Get your 35 years. Make sure there's no zeros. Be prepared for changes. You are at an age where you will have changes. You will most likely be subject to a full retirement age later than 67 and maybe a full benefit past age 70. Prep for that. Give strong consideration to any type of annuity that your retirement plan at work will most likely offer sometime over the next five years. Secure 2 has opened the gates for income-producing property uh, products inside 401ks. They're only going to have one choice per 401k. It's not like you're going to have 18 choices like you might on investments. Pay attention to whatever choice your 401k gives you. Try to find someone who can help you analyze, is this really good? Because I fear many of them won't truly be that great. But some of them will be off the wall spectacular. Why? Institutional pricing, which is what the insurance companies were pushing when they got Congress to change the rules and to give employers protection from liability. Employers were loath to offer income producing options in 401ks because they didn't want to be sued if the income producing option failed to perform as as hoped or if the insurance company backing it went out of business. So they set some rules. It's not a free-for-all. 
The fiduciaries of the plans have to follow certain rules and do certain due diligence. And if they make a sound decision in 2023, they can't be held responsible if in 2053, 30 years from now, something that no one could have predicted in 2023 happens. They have that protection and rightfully so. You can't hold someone responsible for a decision they made 30 years earlier. But my point is, you're going to start to see more and more income choices, which I think is a good thing. We're going to need to head towards wrapping here. Okay. So anyways, I just want him to kind of look beyond the box, save as much as you can, and look at income choices because you need to protect that MDF in the future. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. And then once you enter your 50s, that's what I say many times to people. There's a certain point where you have what you're going to have. You've, you've, you've now created the financial resources to now deploy. And then you can really get serious about you know, what that deployment is going to look like. That's so good question. Um, I know that there's, we have a handful of young listeners out there and a lot of what we talk about is a little bit difficult to apply, but um, I like that people are thinking about it that young. That's excellent. So thanks a lot for everybody sending in their questions. Makes the show go. If you want to send in your own questions, send them to Jim directly, jim at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S.com. Make sure in the subject line you indicate that it's a question for the podcast, and uh, hopefully we'll get to your question um, on a future show. So uh, we will have one of those future shows with you next week when we record, record a brand new one. So stay tuned, and we'll talk to you soon. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saunier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 